Ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the movie trivia showdown. Yeah, good evening here tonight. Who's ready for some matches? Questions are going to be asked to the field. They are each worth one point. Who plays Laura in the 2017 film Logan? Daphne Keene. Daphne Keene. Round number two. Each competitor is going to get a spin at the wheel. Oh, Final no. round three begins. Niet. No. Uh -huh. Sam Witwer has been eliminated. Celebrity showdown, free for all style. Let me see. Right. Team Classic. This is why we played the showdown. Rising Sun. Your winner! MMA or boxing, it's like you want to see the two best scrapping it out. The Schmodown, as we know, we got a little bit of a WWE flavor to it. And I'm going to give him a show in Chicago. Get your tickets. We are coming with the fire. Movie trivia! Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of All My Movies, where I take a movie off the shelf and talk about it in depth each and every week. And today we're talking about the movie that keeps playing on repeat in my head and has for a lot of other people, Groundhog Day. Next week is the annual day where Punxsutawney Phil emerges from his hole and tells us whether there are going to be six more weeks of winter or not. But since this movie's come out, I would say that more people associate Groundhog Day with Bill Murray than associate Groundhog Day with the actual Groundhog. We're going to talk about the film, the making of the film, the legacy of the film, both good and bad, all of that from beginning to end. But first, if you're watching us on the Schmodown Entertainment Network, I would love it if you would go to Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you like to find your audio podcasts, and subscribe to the show and download it there as well. And if you're listening to us on the podcast version of the show, we'd love for you to come see us over on the Schmodown Entertainment Network. So, let's get to the business at hand and talk about 1993's Groundhog Day. Well, what if there is no tomorrow? There wasn't one today. The two biggest and most recognizable creative forces behind Groundhog Day are star Bill Murray and director and co-writer Harold Ramis, who when this movie was made had already had a very long and fruitful career together, both on screen and off screen. Ramis is a writer and director of Bill Murray's breakout roles in Meatballs and Caddyshack and on screen in movies like Ghostbusters and Stripes, which Ramis also co-wrote. Are either of you uh, homosexuals? No, we're not homosexual, but we are willing to learn. Yeah, would they send us someplace special? This was a very successful creative collaboration between the two, but also one that Bill Murray was reportedly a little wary of because he was afraid that audiences would give Ramis too much credit for the triumphs of his career. And these tensions, which were brought into this project, are part of what eventually boiled over on the set of the movie. The original concept for Groundhog Day came from co-screenwriter Danny Rubin, who wrote the screenplay and then shopped it out. This was his first feature screenplay and by far his biggest project produced to date. And Harold Ramis really, really liked the script, although there were a lot of things that he changed and he would go on to rewrite much of what would make it to the screen in the finished product. One of the major things was the structure of the film. While the original screenplay started in the middle of the time loop, we basically picked the movie up where Phil punches Ned Ryerson in the face and then we hear 
hear voiceover about what's been going on, Harold Ramis decided to restructure it so that we are following Phil from the beginning. One of the biggest changes I made in the script was to start uh, to show Phil discovering this whole process. I thought it would be a... um, We'd really be cheating the audience not to let them see his reaction. Groundhog Day is a really tricky film when you're looking at who to cast in the lead because you have a protagonist who, at the beginning of the film, is completely unlikable. People like blood sausage, too. People are morons. Nice attitude. Then you take Phil in the second half, as he's trapped in this endless cycle of time, he essentially becomes a standard movie romantic lead. And so this is not an easy transition to make. And being able to take the audience along on this journey successfully is one thing that co-star Stephen Tobolowski credits for the film's great success. I think we detest Bill and his smugness at the beginning. I think one of the miracles of the movie is that during the course of the movie, we want boy to get girl. Even though Ramis and Murray had worked together a lot and they both knew each other very well, Harold Ramis also thought that Bill Murray was an easy fit for this character because knowing Bill Murray as he did, he also had seen this very nasty side of him, something that he shared with his character. And this is something that Harold Ramis has stated plainly several times after the film's release and also something that he put a little more diplomatically in this documentary about the making of the movie. He seems to come by the nasty part quite honestly, the self-centeredness and all. And Bill Murray really does understand that character. I mean, you know, you know, he's not a movie star by accident. However, Bill Murray was not the only choice for Phil Connors. As a matter of fact, before he was involved, the project was taken to another comedy star of that time, Tom Hanks, who ultimately didn't think he could do the role because he's just too darn nice. Tom saw the film and he said to me, uh, you know, it's really good that Bill did the movie and not me. Uh, And I said, why? And he said, well, with me, everyone thinks of me as a good guy. And when I was, if if I was playing Phil Connors, they would just be waiting for the moment when I turned from nasty guy to good guy. He said, with Bill, you never know. Once Bill Murray was on board to star in the movie, he also began weighing in on the direction of the film. And this was another source of conflict for Ramis and Murray, because Bill Murray wanted to push the movie a little more philosophical, a little more esoteric, while Harold Ramis was trying to pull it back to fit the standards of a more traditional studio comedy. And this is really the direction that Ramis successfully pushed a lot of the film. And while this created some tensions between Harold Ramis and Bill Murray, the one thing that Murray has been very consistent on is his respect for Danny Rubin, who originated the idea. As a matter of fact, as recently as 2017, he still sang Rubin's praises for having having the original concept for Groundhog Day. I don't take a lot of credit for it. The kid whose idea was Danny Rubin is a great, that, I mean, he was touched touched by God when he wrote that. He really was. In the crucial co-starring role as Rita, Phil's producer and love interest, Ramis chose Andy McDowell, who was on the precipice of even bigger fame in the following year's hit, Four Weddings and a Funeral. And Andy McDowell has said that she actually enjoyed her time making the film, largely because of Murray's approach to the character and to acting in general, which is a very freewheeling and unpredictable style. This might frustrate some actors, but it was something that Andy McDowell actually thrived on. Every take is his own. He 
changes. It, it changes every time. So all you have to do is be present. You, if you're present and you're listening, you're reacting constantly to whatever he's doing. It's always real. Also in supporting roles were Chris Elliott as Phil's cameraman Larry, Bill Murray's real-life brother Brian Doyle Murray as Buster Green, the bigwig of Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania, and maybe the biggest breakout supporting performance of the film, character actor Stephen Tobolowski as Needle-Nose Ned Ryerson. Needle-Nose Ned, Ned the head, come on buddy, Case Western High! Tobolowski was already a screen veteran, he'd been in movies like Spaceballs and Basic Instinct and Sneakers in a very key supporting role, and in order to land the role of Ned Ryerson, he decided to throw caution to the wind and fully embrace the larger-than-life persona of this Pennsylvania insurance salesman. For my first audition, I went in and I said, you know, Harold, I worked on this yesterday, some at home, and I think it's getting kind of big. It's getting a little broad. You know, you may need a spatula to scrape me off the walls, but I'm going to go for it, okay? Rewatching Groundhog Day, which I always love to do, and I guess it's fitting for this movie. The movie itself is on repeat inside of itself. One thing that I hadn't noticed, and maybe it's because I did a, a special video on this movie last year for my channel, is that the opening credits of Groundhog Day are startlingly similar to the opening credits of the terrible movie that I love, M. Night Shyamalan's The Happening. As a matter of fact, the movies actually even kind of work if you switch the music for each one of them. <laughs> As we start the film, we see Phil at work doing weather at the Pittsburgh news station, getting ready to get dispatched for his annual trip to Punxsutawney, a trip which he hates. For your information, Hairdo, there is a major network interested in me. After seeing initial cuts of the film, it was thought that the characters of Rita and Phil and Phil's general demeanor needed more setup than just opening the action as everyone was going to Punxsutawney. So this sequence was added months after production had originally ended in order to better boost the start of the movie. You haven't worked with her yet, have you? She's really nice. I think she's going to be a really good producer. <laughs> and then we move to Punxsutawney and Phil's utter disdain for everything and everybody in this town. They sing songs till they get too cold and then they go sit by the fire and they get warm and then they come back and they sing some more. Yeah. They're hicks, Rita. And I think it's really smart for them, even with the addition of the opening sequence, to get inside the first 10 minutes into the first Groundhog Day because it's so important for this first sequence. It really lays the comedic groundwork for everything that follows. And so you're introduced to the alarm clock. Then put your little hand in mine. The man in the hall. Morning! You have to see the groundhog. Breakfast down in the lobby. Will you be checking out today, Mr. Connors? Ned Ryerson. Phil? Hey, Phil? All of this is painstakingly created and then recreated throughout the film for maximum comedic benefit. But it's very important to get this one right because this is really the last time we see the pure Phil Connors. He's going to get more likable in some parts of the film. He's going to get less likable in some parts of the film. But he is a changed man from this point on. So you have to lay this baseline and it's very important that they get it right. And this movie gets it right. Am I right or am I right or am I right? Following the Groundhog Day Festival, Phil is anxious to leave the small town, but then either by chance or some unseen cosmic force, Phil, Rita, and Larry are trapped in Punxsutawney after a freak blizzard shuts down all of the roads outside of town. And Phil's decision about whether to go back to the town he hates or die in the snow actually takes some comedic DNA from Jack Benny. It's a setup and a joke that was, even at that time, about half a century old, but still effective. Now you can go back to Punxsutawney, or you can go ahead and freeze to death. 
It's your choice. I'm thinking. Now, come on. Your money or your life? <laughs> I'm thinking it over. The next morning, Phil wakes up, and it is once again... I think being able to see Phil's realization of this first loop is an example of the advantage of having a comedic mind weighing in on the script, somebody like a Harold Ramis, because I think his instinct was correct. If you had opened this movie in the middle, you would be robbed of this really funny comedic beat. It's well-directed, it's well-acted, and the movie would be lesser if you didn't have that in the film. Well, it's Groundhog Day, again. I think it's also smart that both Ramis and Ruben made the decision not to explain how and why Phil is caught in this time loop. It is something that had been discussed, however, at an earlier stage in the film's development. We had toyed with other kinds of uh, devices to introduce uh, uh, Bill's character and to kind of suggest why this curse was uh, was put on him. We had him with a disaffected lover at the TV station, and she curses him. And uh, None of that stuff made any sense, and we thought the audience doesn't really need to know why. This is such a smart decision, and I think it goes down to storytellers who know the difference between plot and story. And it may seem like it's the same thing, but there's actually a pretty important distinction. The plot is just the series of events. It's basically the framework upon which you hang a story. So if there was a storyteller out there that said, well, I have to explain the time loop, otherwise that's a plot hole. Technically, yes. Technically, in the sequence of events, not knowing how and why Phil is trapped in this time loop is a hole in that it is unexplained in the film. However, the story does not require an explanation of this time loop. It's something that the plot may require, but the story doesn't. And sometimes you should focus on story over plot. I think that's a problem with so many movies nowadays, is they get so concerned with these theoretical plot holes or making everything completely airtight that you end up getting bogged down in explanation and unnecessary scenes and you lose the thread of the overall story. A great story can succeed if there are problems with the plot because you are so involved with and engaged with the characters that you don't care how or why certain things happen. And that's true of some of the greatest films of all time. When you look at Casablanca, there are all kinds of things you could ask about. Like, well, if they need these letters of transit to leave, but then there's nobody there at the end of the film, then why doesn't Humphrey Bogart just get on the plane? Well, yes, if you're looking at it from a plot perspective, uh, they don't explain that. However, the story works because Humphrey Bogart stays and walks off into the fog and says, this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. It's the emphasis of story over plot. You can get that balance wrong and things do still have to make sense. But when you look at why Groundhog Day is such a great movie, it's not because the plot is flawless. It's because it is a fantastic story. And the people that were making it knew that you didn't have to fill in every single detail about the plot. As the events in the film start repeating, I think it is really important to recognize how difficult this is to pull off, both from an acting standpoint and from a technical standpoint. From a technical standpoint, you have to look at what the people making the film had to do in restaging each day, because you can't just send the actors back to one. You, the background actors have to be the same. The cars passing in the background have to be the same. The lighting has to look the same, because if things look radically different, then you start to see through the seams and it becomes lazy filmmaking. A lot of credit has to go not just to Harold Ramis, but to the assistant directors on the film, because that is a big part of the task of assistant directors is getting background actors where they need to be. That job was 10 times harder on this movie, and with very few exceptions, they performed that job flawlessly to keep this illusion alive. 
You also have to give a lot of credit to the actors, especially when you realize that things like Phil's meeting with Ned Ryerson weren't shot in a series of different days throughout the production. They were all shot pretty much at the same time over a day or two because this, everything was already set up there. It would be very costly and labor intensive to go back to the same location and reset up everything. But that means that these actors had to do an entire movie's worth of character and emotional progression in the space of a couple of days. We'd first we do the one where it's a normal day and you're just you know hurrying along and you st now in the second day you're a little confused and the third day you're very confused and desperate by shooting them one right after the other we it was really easy to see how we were progressing it i think this is one of the saddest things about the burgeoning feud between bill murray and harold Ramis, which is that they really did work together as an actor and a director particularly and bill murray relied so much on harold Ramis's directing throughout this movie because he had to essentially be coached depending on which scene they were shooting about what stage of phil connor's progression he was at in any given scene bill had kind of divided his character into bad phil and good phil and whenever we'd start a scene, he'd say, uh, or, am I bad Phil or good Phil? It was like he hadn't even read the script or something. Well, of course he had, but he sometimes had trouble keeping track of where he was. Following Phil's initial confusion, he moves on to a sort of nihilism and acceptance that nothing in his life now matters. And one of the things that I like is it's not just the focus on him as a character. They include this exchange between him and the two working class guys in the bowling alley where he expresses the futility of life and then the other guy agrees with him because it is this comedy mixed with tragedy it's something the movie does really well and you actually get a glimpse into this other guy's life that phil may eventually escape this time loop but for this guy he understands what living a futile life feels like what would you do if you were stuck in one place and every day was exactly the same and nothing that you did mattered that about sums it up for me. We also get a great piece of physical comedy from Bill Murray in this section, who, in the midst of a long dialogue with Rita about not having to worry about anything anymore, he takes down an entire piece of cake in one bite. Oh. What? But Bill Murray did not take advantage of a life hack that is used by a lot of actors in eating scenes like this, and that led to some pretty serious digestive issues down the line. We asked Bill when we were shooting this, do you, do you want a spit bucket? Often when an actor is doing a scene with food, particularly in commercials, it happens a lot. Rather than swallow all that food, you, uh, you turn and spit it into a bucket just off camera. Bill said, no, no, I don't need it. Uh, it's fine. So... <laughs> He actually consumed a tremendous amount of food in this scene. It made himself a little sick. He ate many pieces of that angel food cake. We'll get back to our breakdown of Groundhog Day in just a moment, but first, a word from our sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Monk Pack. You know, now that the holidays are over, it's time for another annual tradition, struggling to keep your New Year's resolutions. I know it's something that I am guilty of every single year. And one of the hardest is that resolution to eat healthier. Because let's face it, the holidays just happen. We're used to big sugary snacks. It's hard to find something that fills that role. Well, enter Monk Pack. Monk Pack Keto Nut and Seed Bars contain less than one gram of sugar, two to three net grams of carbs, and they're only 150 calories. If you're doing the keto lifestyle or if you just want to cut back on sugar and carbs, these Monk Pack bars are really great because it's got that sweet taste, but without all the bad effects. I don't have to worry about looking at the calorie count on one of those bars. Is this one more than that bar? And they come in a lot of different flavors like sea salt dark chocolate, pecan almond, and peanut butter 
butter dark chocolate. And the peanut butter dark chocolate one is the one that's my favorite so far because you get that balance. I really love the sweetness of the peanut butter and you also get the sweetness of the chocolate, but they have that little bitterness that you get with a dark chocolate. I love the combination along with the crunch of the seeds and the nuts. It really is a great mixture of what I love and it's a great snack for me to just grab any time during my day. You know, I'm up here, I'm doing podcasts, I'm hosting. I can run downstairs, I can grab a Monk Pack keto nut and seed bar. I can come right back up. It takes me 30 seconds and it's filling. I don't have to stop for a meal 20 minutes later because this was a great snack. And the great news is you don't even have to run to the grocery store to grab Monk Pack because they will deliver it right to your door. Try it for yourself and you'll see. And we have a very special deal for our listeners. You can get 20% off of your first purchase of any Monk Pack product by visiting monkpack.com and entering our code MOVIES at checkout. And Monk Pack is so confident in their product, it is backed with a 100% satisfaction guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they will exchange the product or refund your money, whichever you prefer. To get started, just go to monkpack.com. That's M U N K P A C K.com and select any product. Then enter the code MOVIES at checkout to save 20% off your purchase. Monk Pack, delicious, nutritious food you can count on. And I like to thank them for sponsoring our show. Well, would you like a doggy bag? No, I'm gonna stay here and finish. I thought you hated this town. Well, it's beginning to grow on me. Following his nihilism, Phil then seeks to take advantage of this situation, first by picking up a local woman named Nancy, who he pretends to have been a former classmate of. And one thing that I noticed this time that I missed or had forgotten about previous times is the way that he takes on the cadence of Ned Ryerson when he's pretending to be reintroducing himself to Nancy. And I think this only underlines the real cynicism that Phil is approaching these actions with. Phil? Nancy? Phil Connors? Nancy Taylor? Case Western High. Lincoln High School. I did the whistling belly button trick at the high school talent show. I sat next to you in Mrs. Walsh's English class. Phil also takes advantage of this time loop, first just through straight up robbery, and then by a protracted attempt to learn everything about Rita in order to con her into thinking that he is her perfect man. Sweet vermouth rocks with a twist, please. That's my favorite drink. Mine too. This is obviously something that Phil spends weeks, if not months, inside this time loop doing. He memorizes her every like and dislike. He memorizes French poetry to quote at her at dinner. You speak French. But this quest leads to what I think is Phil's lowest point in the movie as far as not liking him. This hotel room encounter where he tries to close the deal and just assume that Rita is going to be in love with him. This was already an uncomfortable scene, which I think is even more uncomfortable in today's world than when it was made. No, Phil, really? (laughs) Just stay for a while and then if you like it, stay for a while longer and if you like it, stay for a while longer. This scene also leads into a very revealing line, and I like that the movie doesn't make a huge speech or a huge moment out of it, but I think it's key to understanding Phil's journey throughout the film, which is that he's not necessarily happy with the person he is. As a matter of fact, he's very unhappy. I could never love someone like you, Phil, because you'll never love anyone but yourself. That's not true. I don't even like myself. 
If Phil had enjoyed being the person that he is at the beginning of the film, and I mean really enjoyed it, then I don't think he ever would have escaped this time loop. And that's what I think the journey of this character is really all about. There's been some criticism that, well, at the end of the day, really, it's just about Phil getting Rita. So isn't that pretty much what the movie was condemning earlier? But I don't necessarily think that that's the case. And I'll talk about it a little bit more when we talk about the end of the movie. But I think what this journey is about, way more than Phil trying to fall in love with Rita or get Rita to fall in love with him is him falling in love with himself. Now, you would say, well, he's already in love with himself at the beginning of the movie, but I think falling in love with himself in a different way. It's about embracing the inherent goodness inside of him, dropping the shield that he's kept up between himself and everybody else in the world. And I think it was smart that you see that Rita and Larry don't necessarily hate Phil at the beginning of this movie. As a matter of fact, they want to like Phil. The audience wants to like Phil. Would you like to come to dinner with Larry and me? No, thank you. I've seen Larry eat. (laughs) And I don't know if there are adjustments that were made after casting Bill Murray, but I think that by making the character's quest be a journey to self-actualization and not externalizing it to seeking something from others, then it makes it a much more satisfying journey when we get to the end of the movie. Following many unsuccessful attempts to replicate his close-to-perfect night with Rita, Phil then falls into the depression mode of his time loop adventure. It's going to be cold, it's going to be gray, and it's going to last you for the rest of your life. Suicide is about as dark as it gets in the real world. I think the best comedy, or oftentimes the best comedy, is comedy that takes risks. And yes, you take the risk of failing, but I think that Groundhog Day takes the risk that the audience is going to understand where this character is and trust that he's going to move past this point in his journey. He might be okay. No, probably not now. This entire sequence doesn't derail the film. It's just another step in Phil's journey throughout this time loop. And I think by putting a comedic beat at the beginning and then following it with this sort of moment of clarity from the character, it makes it seem like all of these things weren't just sort of thrown away. You're not making light of the topic of suicide. I have been stabbed, shot, poisoned, frozen, hung electrocuted and burned. Oh, really? This was something that the character of Phil Connors had to go through in order to get to this moment where he realizes that he can now move on to this phase of what I kind of call omniscience through learning. I'm a god. You're a god. I'm a god. I'm not the god. And this is where Phil Connors starts to become the person that we see at the end of the movie. And so once again, Groundhog Day takes something like an unlikable character in the beginning, as Phil Connors is, or something like the subject of suicide, things that could have turned an audience against a movie, and through smart writing and smart plotting and smart storytelling, they're able to get through that beat and continue the story on and keep the audience on board. I wake up every day right here, right in Punxsutawney, and it's always February 2nd, and there's nothing I can do about it. One thing I like about the section of the movie where Phil realizes that he is a god, not the god, is that we have this beat where he is able to successfully convince Rita what's happening. And again, another story, one that is not as good as this one, may have turned this into a repeat beat of Phil trying to seduce Rita. But what I like is that we instead have this very sweet moment between the characters where he's able to convince her what's happening and they spend this night together, but it's very different from the previous night that they spent together. It's more about him seeking that connection. The worst part is that tomorrow you will have forgotten all about this and you'll treat me like a jerk again. 
No. It's all right. I am a jerk. I think this is partially Phil trying to convince himself that he's ready to take the next step, that he has earned the approval of Rita, even if it was just fleeting, even if it was all undone the next day. And so he knows that he's capable of this kind of redemption and then goes on to take these steps for himself. Well, sometimes I wish I had a thousand lifetimes. I don't know, Phil. Maybe it's not a curse. It just depends on how you look at it. As Phil embarks on this journey to make the best world possible, we enter what some would consider the final phase of the film. And this is a phase of the film that Harold Ramis refers to as the Superman phase of the movie, basically because he feels like it is the ideal version of what a superhero could be. I know I just thought about uh, if, if you were Superman, how could you justify just hanging out with Lois Lane? Or There's always something you should or could be doing. So um, we send Phil off on this. Uh, Phil just tries to do everything he can possibly do in a day that's good. He tries to help as many people as possible. He tries to be there for everybody, as I would want Superman to be. This all leads to Phil's final day in the loop, which he doesn't even really know is going to be his final day in the loop. And we see what he spent his time doing. He helps the elderly. He saves Buster's life. He keeps a kid from falling out of a tree. He gives WrestleMania tickets to a very young Michael Shannon. WrestleMania! <laughs> and he ultimately wins the love of Rita by actually being the perfect man for her, which is the man that it took him years and years probably inside of this loop to become. No matter what happens tomorrow or for the rest of my life, I'm happy now. Some people think that maybe he is, that he's trying to game the system and that he successfully does it and he, lear he earns a ticket out of the time loop. I don't think that's the case. I really do think at the end of this day, he goes to sleep next to Rita, thinking that he's going to wake up the next morning, but he's content. He's content in that he has finally achieved a day where he did the maximum amount of good for everyone that he possibly could. He gave Rita a very nice night, and he's going to wake up and do it all over again. He has finished this commitment to being fully good, and that is when he's allowed to leave the time loop. Do you know what today is? No, what? <laughs> today is tomorrow. Of course, the lingering question is, how long did Phil spend in this time loop? And it's not a question that's ever been answered with any kind of finality. We have little clues here and there. Of course, we see about three or four dozen iterations of the day in the movie, but it is implied to have been much longer. Phil even implies at one point that he spent six months just learning how to throw playing cards into a hat. It would take me a year to get good at this. No, six months, four to five hours a day, and you'd be an expert. Harold Ramis has offered a few clues here and there. In one interview, he says that screenwriter Danny Rubin had intended for Phil to be trapped in Punxsutawney, potentially for millennia. In Danny Rubin's uh, original script, you know, when Danny and I talked about it, Danny imagined him living this day over and over for thousands of years. But in the commentary for the film, Ramis implies that it could have been significantly less time. We figured he'd really been, the day had been repeating for about 10 years. That's how he gets so good at, you know. No matter how long Phil was in the time loop, audiences were very happy to spend time in Punxsutawney. Groundhog Day opened on February 12th, 1993 at number one. Groundhog Day stayed in the box office top five for two months and ended up grossing just over $70 million domestically. That put it as the 13th highest grossing film of 1993, just behind the whale kids drama Free Willy 
and a film starring Tom Hanks, who after passing on Groundhog Day, ended up making a pretty good career choice, starring in the 1993 landmark age drama Philadelphia, which would go on to win him one of his two successive Best Actor Oscars. Groundhog Day was not nominated for any Oscars, but it did get Harold Ramis the closest that he would ever get in his career to mainstream award show recognition when he and Danny Rubin won a BAFTA award for Best Original Screenplay. And Groundhog Day, while popular, could very easily have dissolved away in the sands of time. But it was obvious to Ramis very soon after the film's initial release that the reception for this movie was unlike any other movie he'd done before. We sort of knew that we've had this embrace from the uh, spiritual and uh, religious and psychological community that very few films had ever experienced, I think. So instantly people were uh, identifying the film as a teaching and in such a um, parochial way, each seeing it as an expression of their own particular point of view without recognizing that it was in fact a universal point of view. Groundhog Day entered the public consciousness and really has not left in the nearly 30 years, it's hard to believe, since that movie has been made. And it also opened up so many different doors for Bill Murray because it was actually able to deliver on both goals. It was a mainstream commercial comedic success, which allowed him to continue to take those roles, but the more esoteric parts of the film, which allowed him to stretch different muscles as an actor that he had not done on screen before, opened other doors for him that allowed for the next stage of his career to begin. Following Groundhog Day, Bill Murray took a small but memorable supporting role in Tim Burton's Oscar-winning film, Ed Wood, then moved on to a critically acclaimed comedic turn in the Farrelly Brothers' Kingpin, which led to a landmark 1998 for the actor with two game-changing performances for him, a supporting role in the film Wild Things, and the film that officially announced a new phase of his career, 1998's Wes Anderson film, Rushmore. She's my Rushmore, Max. Yeah, I know. She was mine, too. A decade after Groundhog Day, Bill Murray would be nominated and become a frontrunner for the Best Actor Oscar in a transformational role in Sofia Coppola's Lost in Translation. But I think you can look at that performance and trace that DNA all the way back to Groundhog Day. And as happens with so many collaborations, it turns out that both he and Ramis were both right. Ramis was right to push Groundhog Day more towards commercial viability, and Murray was right to fight for the more esoteric parts of the screenplay. The great irony behind Groundhog Day is that even though it represents the peak of the creative relationship between Harold Ramis and Bill Murray, it was also the end of their real-life friendship. As Harold Ramis's daughter Violet writes in her memoir, Ghostbusters Daughter, quote, Groundhog Day was the film that broke the friendship between my dad and Bill Murray. Bill was going through a difficult time in his personal life, and he and my dad were not seeing eye to eye on the tone of the film. They had a few arguments on set, including one in which my dad uncharacteristically lost his temper, grabbed Bill by the collar, and shoved him up against a wall. Eventually, Bill just completely shut my dad out for the next 20 plus years. The relationship between the two men was irreparably broken for the better part of two decades, with Bill Murray refusing to even speak of his former friend, and Harold Ramis being publicly resigned to the loss of a friend and collaborator. Then in 2010, Harold Ramis was diagnosed with a disease called autoimmune inflammatory vasculitis, a very rare disease that essentially directed the body's immune system to attack the blood vessels, resulting in inflammation and eventually organ failure. In the later years of his life, Harold Ramis lost the ability to walk and towards the very end of his life, according to his family, lost most of his ability to speak as well. Reportedly at the urging of his brother, Brian Doyle Murray, Bill Murray visited Harold Ramis unexpectedly shortly before his death, 
And according to friends and family members, they didn't necessarily wash away everything that had happened between them on the set of Groundhog Day, but instead it was an opportunity to renew their friendship or at least remember it. And even though Ramis reportedly couldn't really speak to his former friend, they were able to share one final warm memory together before Harold Ramis passed away in February of 2014. This was a very sad day among those who are normally the funniest people in American life. That's because Harold Ramis died today. If you have a favorite funny movie from the 70s right through the next couple of decades, there's a good chance you can thank Harold Ramis for making you laugh. A couple of weeks after Ramis's passing on the Academy Awards telecast, Murray broke with the script for an impromptu tribute to his friend following the presentation of nominees for Best Cinematography. Oh, we forgot one. Harold Ramis for Caddyshack, Ghostbusters, and Groundhog Day. Following Ramis's death, Bill Murray still hasn't spoken of him publicly that often, though he has said on many occasions that the current Ghostbusters projects that are in development sorely miss Ramis's presence as a big creative force behind the franchise. But in 2017, for five months, a musical adaptation of Groundhog Day played on Broadway in New York City, and Bill Murray unexpectedly showed up late in the show's run to not one, but two performances in a row. Murray, who sort of made it his thing in the later part of his career of alternating between complete recluse and surprise life of the party, reportedly openly wept during the musical and later told the New York Times, quote, the idea that we just have to try again. We just have to try again. It's such a beautiful, powerful idea. As always, I like to look at the physical copy of the movie we're talking about, and this version of Groundhog Day was put out in 2008 for the 15th anniversary of the film, and I want to say uh, right off the bat that I hate this cover art. I really, really do, and I think one of the great downfalls of reissuing movies over and over again on different forms of physical media is that you get this variance in the artwork, etc. I think it looks awful, it's photoshopped garbage, uh, but that is the option that you get because you don't always get the versions that might have had the original poster art. Sometimes there are no versions with the original poster art. Perhaps I will print my own covers someday. So terrible cover aside, this actually isn't a terrible disc. It's a good-looking print of the movie, and it's got some decent special features, including deleted scenes from the film. I'll take the Lakers over the Sonics by four. I'll take the Bulls over the Pistons by 14. The disc also has an interview with the late great Harold Ramis, who shares a lot of my viewpoints on the magic of movies, which is that the movies are locked in. They don't change. You change. The film is the film. It's done. So every time people come to Groundhog Day, they're coming to it at a different age, a different time of life. Their circumstances may have changed, and they may find something different in it. There's also a documentary about the making of the film, which is about 25 minutes long. And there's sort of a delightful feature about the study of groundhogs, which are actually marmots. I found that out in this documentary. It also goes into the origins of the Groundhog Day tradition. When the German settlers came to Pennsylvania, uh, there they saw this animal in the ground that hibernated and came above ground. And so they turned to it uh, as an indication 
the spring was coming. And there is a director's commentary with Harold Ramis who provides some interesting insights. You've heard several of them in this episode. My one criticism would be that he seems to sort of get caught up in watching the movie himself. So there are some protracted periods where he doesn't really say much. It is one of those commentaries where if you want to rewatch the film, I think you could throw on the Ramis commentary track and still enjoy the process of watching the movie because that seems to be what he's doing throughout much of the commentary as well. And that wraps up my take on Groundhog Day. As we approach the real Groundhog Day next week, we also have our first theme month coming up for February, and I hope against hope that I do not get caught in some kind of a time loop with next month because we are going to be talking about bad movie month. And it's a combination of every different kind of bad movie. Movies that I legitimately hate, movies that are deliciously bad, movies that are famously bad. We're going to be covering all of those bases, and we're going to start with maybe one of my most hated movies ever. You know what? I'm going to say it. It is one of my most hated movies ever. Transformers Age of Extinction, which I think is the low point of a franchise that has a lot of low points. I'm going to move the microphone back next week because I may get a little heated still about this 2014 Michael Bay clunker. So stay tuned next week. We'll be kicking off Bad Movie Month, and we have so many other great things that are planned for the next few months. I can't wait to tell you about Thank you so much for watching. As I mentioned, please, if you're watching us on the Schmodown Entertainment Network, head to wherever you can find podcasts, Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, download and listen to the show there on the go. And if you're listening to us and you want to see the video version of the show, you can find us on the Schmodown Entertainment Network. Thank you so much for watching. I'll be back next week to talk about Transformers Age of Extinction. But until then, it's time to go back on the show.